Thanks, Peter. Good morning. My name's Matt. Great to be with you, man. It is a zoo in here, isn't it, this morning? You heard that uh, five lions escaped from their enclosure at Taronga Zoo this week. I reckon it's, it's uh, more dangerous for your health being at Vine Church on Sunday morning today. Crazy, it's a zoo. No, it's great to be with you all. Uh, so good. One of the pastors here. Um, maybe you haven't met me yet. Let me warn you about something. Apparently, I've been told that I can be a little bit intense. Um, I asked someone what they meant when they told me that one day, and they said, uh, Matt, often you ask, how is your soul going? Not just, how are you? How are you really going? How's your soul going? I'm sorry if that's a little bit intense for you. Um, But I found a Bible passage to back it up, and Peter just read it out to us. Uh, So here's the question for you this morning. How do you know when you're really going well? How do you know when your soul is well? How do you know when your soul is well? I want you to turn to your neighbor, the people around you for a moment. Maybe you haven't met them. Uh, Try not to be too intense. Uh, But I I want you to discuss together um, what makes a soul well. Or what do you think the people that you know, how would they answer the question, what makes a soul well? Turn to your neighbor, discuss. I'll bring the zoo to attention in a moment. Have a chat. Thanks, Jim. Alrighty, how'd you go? Welcome back. So I take that question, what makes a soul well, from uh, the first real line of that little personal note that was read out to us uh, by Peter a moment ago, where John, who calls himself the elder, uh, writes to his dear friend, his beloved He calls him that four times in this book. He writes to his friend, he says, Dear friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and that that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. There's that line. And I think actually everything in this letter is actually about soul wellness, about your soul getting along well. Um, At least that's how we can break down this little letter to get something something out of it for us today. Uh, He's going to talk about how he can tell Gaius is going well, what it looks like for your soul to be going well, what's going to threaten your soul going well, and finally, how you can become soul well if maybe you're soul sick, so to speak. 
Um, I think this is a, a theme, maybe you're struggling with the word soul, what does that mean? I actually think this is a theme that resonates with most of us today. Because whether you call yourself someone religious or spiritual or not, um, and yes, it might be strange to talk about, use this word soul as if we can just automatically come up with a dictionary definition for it. I think it's really hard to do that. But I think many of us have had an experience uh, where deep down we know we're more than just flesh and bones. There's something to us on the inside of us that is maybe immaterial. And when the Bible uses the word soul, it's talking about the center of the inner human life. Uh, maybe today, you know, people might say who you really are. There's a soul to you. Something that maybe even transcends this earthly nature of who you are. And that's, that's what we're talking about today. Tiny little caveat, I love that John says to his friends, I pray uh, that you may enjoy good health and that may, all may go well with you. He's not just concerned about his soul. He's also concerned about the body as well. And I think maybe some of us think Christians are lost to this world or maybe we're a little bit airy-fairy about what's actually going on in someone's life. Um, John here reminds us it's good to pray about the whole person. Christians should be concerned about what is happening to you, flesh and blood, what's really going on for you in your life. Um, but John's main concern here is with his friend's spiritual health, his soul. And this little forgotten book of 3 John, the smallest book in the Bible, you can read it if you're reading it not aloud in 42 seconds. I tried. Um, you can do it. But the, this answer to this big question about your soul is found in this tiny little book. So that's where we're going today. What is soul wellness? That's our first little question. What is soul wellness? Um, I'll go back here for a moment. What is spiritual health? The first sign, the first big giveaway that a person is spiritually healthy, that their soul is well, is that someone is integrated someone is integrated. There is correspondence between someone's creed and their conduct. There's no dichotomy between what they preach and what they practice. Have a look at what uh, John says here uh, in verses 3 and 4. He says this, It gave me great joy when some believers came and testified about your faithfulness to the truth, telling how you continue to walk in it. He says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. What's he talking about here? The metaphor of walking in the first century and in biblical times. Um, this metaphor of walking was about living your life. was about everything you did. It was about how you lived. About your comings and goings, your whole life. And there's a few interesting things here to note about soul health from what he's saying. He's saying it's not just about knowing stuff. It's about acting on it. It's about living it out. That is what the spiritual person is, the healthy, the soul well person is. There's someone who's integrated between what they think and how they act. And we know this to be true, don't we? How unbalanced, how unhealthy, how confused, unlikable, or even repulsive someone is who professes something, professes to be a kind of person, but in their lifestyle and in their actions, they undermine that. We don't like that kind of person. They're called hypocrites. Don't we hate being called a hypocrite? Um, 
my wife and I like to keep a t- tidy house at home. We've got two little toddlers, so it's nigh, nigh on impossible. But we like to keep a tidy house. And one of the things that theoretically we think will keep a tidy house is this little rule called the one-touch rule. Have you heard of the one-touch rule? You haven't heard of the one-touch rule? I'm going to change your life <laughs> right now. I'm going to change your life. It's, it's, it's when you pick something up and you're doing something with something and you're not allowed to put it down again. You're not allowed two touches. It's got to go back exactly where it belongs. Every time. It's the one-touch rule, right? Well, I can tell you, um, my wife and I think we're pretty good at the one-touch rule. I can tell you there's often a little pile of clothes that ends up sweeped under the bed, my side of the bed. Um, Or the other thing that I do is I hide, I have pens all the time. I'm carrying pens in my pockets and stuff. And I'll put them up high in places. My wife's quite short. (laughs) Where she can't see. And I I think I'm getting away with the one-touch rule. I think I'm keeping a tidy house. I am incongruent. I do not practice what I preach when it comes to the one-touch rule. Theoretically, we have this thing that's going to shape our lives and change our lives. But in my practice of them... I am incongruent. I do not practice what I preach. It's the same with our souls, with our beliefs and with our actions. A spiritual healthy person does what they say they will do. Here's the second interesting thing, though, in these first few sentences about what a soul well person is. And that is that they are integrated with the truth. He says you're not just walking in line with any actions, with any beliefs, with any ideas... You're walking in line with the truth. Isn't that interesting? Now, I think, according to our society right now, this is extremely unhealthy. We think it's extremely unhealthy to claim that there is one truth, that you must walk in accordance to one truth, to the truth. This is very uncomfortable for some of us, uh, if not offensive, that there is a truth that is beyond you and that you need to live in line with. It sounds archaic, doesn't it? It sounds institutional. It sounds psychologically damaging. But I want you just to consider for a moment what the truth is that John is talking about. Uh, What the truth is according to the Bible. Uh, I want to borrow some words from a friend of ours here, Uh, somebody who comes to Vine Church, they're here in the evening tonight, they're going to get a shock when their face comes up on the screen. Um, But this is, Anthony is a writer for the Sydney Morning Herald and he wrote this recently in a, a recent article in the Sydney Morning Herald. He said this, he said, grasping how people of faith see the world is genuinely hard. For starters, here's something of a biblical view. Here's something of the truth that John is talking about. Where people created purposely by a holy good creator. And despite our rejection of his love, we are offered deep intimacy with him through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. And we now live in love as we wait for our world to be once again made perfect. That's the truth John is talking about. Walk in line with that. Did you catch what was in the truth, according to the Bible, according to Jesus? purpose, a God who is good, a God who offers us deep intimacy, a God who gives us hope of a, of, of a perfect world to come, 
a God who offers us love. That's the truth, according to John. It's, it's pretty good. And so John is saying the healthy soul isn't just integrated between their, what they think and how they act, but they're integrated with this truth about the world, this truth about God, this truth about us, this truth about the good news of Jesus Christ. And they live it out. It's good for them and it's good for others. So what does that look like practically, though? What does it look like to be so well in the day today? Well, this letter called 3 John, many commentators think it's actually uh, one of three that were probably written at the same time, perhaps on the same day, and sent in a package to a particular church. Uh, 2 John, which we looked at last week, is kind of like a cover letter. For one John, which is a sermon to be read out in the church. And three John is like this personal note. It's like a little sticky note that was attached to the outside, reminding Gaius, one of the leaders in the church, of what he has been doing and encouraging him to continue to do that. Um, And as I read over the letter again and again this week, I kind of summarized what John is saying to Gaius in these words. Um, This personal note, he's saying, look, God wants you, God wants us as a church to continue to support Christian missionaries. Um, A little little bit of context for you, in the first century, much like the 21st century, uh, not everybody throughout the world knows the good news about Jesus. And so people were sent out, especially from the eyewitnesses, they were sent out entrusted with the message of God, the good news of the gospel, and sent to different towns, different cities, to tell people the truth, to pass that message on. Today we call them missionaries. Um, And so this is what Gaius is being instructed to do. When the missionaries come to you, when the evangelists, the teachers of the truth come to you, uh, look after them, continue to look after them. And uh, my initial reaction when I, when I thought that's all that is contained within this personal note, I thought, oh, that's a little, bit, uh, uh, a little bit motherhood and apple pie. It's a little bit what you'd expect a preacher to stand up and talk about, isn't it? Give money to the church. Give money to the preachers. Um, look after missionaries in particular. But this is really important for the early church. And it's actually really important For your soul, it's a sign that your soul is going well if you support Christian missionaries. If you don't forget gospel partners, which is where we get the title for this week from. Um, You may not realize this, um, but when we send people out to teach about the truth across the world, maybe we're sending them from one state to another, maybe we're sending them from one country to another or overseas. Here's the funny thing about people when they travel. Um, They need things. They need food. They need breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day, hopefully. They need clothes. They need summer clothes and winter clothes and in-between clothes. Uh, They need water and other drinks, hopefully coffee. They need passports, they need phones, they need phone chargers, they need toothbrushes, a spare pair of clothes, a hat or two, computers, a house, an apartment, a place to live, a vacuum cleaner, or maybe just the one-touch rule um, to keep their house clean. They need the internet, they need more food, they need 
plane flights, insurance, a car, petrol for that car, a license for the car. I don't know whether you're keeping up, but I'm creating budget line items here. Missionaries need support. They need practical support. Stuff for their kids. There's a long list there, right? They need daycare fees, school fees. I've just listed about 25 things. I'm sure they need much more things than that. Um, so it is necessary that we support people who go out to teach the good news. But I want to draw your attention to one thing here that... Um, oh, here you go. I was going to share this. This is actually my sister in the red there and her husband down the front and their four kids and a couple of friends. About four or five years ago, they moved to the Middle East to become missionaries, to share the good news with other people. And so I became really apparent of these things that they need. I was going to share that earlier. I forgot. It's all good. Um, how you going? They're watching online, perhaps. It's like 2 a.m. in the Middle East where they are right now. Um, I wanted to draw your attention to one thing, though, about what he says here. He says, notice the manner in which we are to send them out. He says, please send them on in a manner that honors God, or as a different translation of the Bible puts it, it says, in a manner worthy of God. What does that mean? Send them in a manner worthy of God. I take it it means because they are representing God as they go out and speak His message, that we are meant to support them in a way as if they are God. We're meant to support them as if it were God Himself going. Now, what would you do if God rocked up to your house looking for some support, some help? How would you treat Him? How would you entertain Him? What would your hospitality look like? I think I heard this story firsthand um, from someone at a previous church. But they, they told me they remembered a time when missionaries would often receive uh, used tea bags. That is, let's say people here in Sydney, Australia, would make a cup of tea. Uh, let's say it's an English breakfast tea, Toby's favourite, an Earl Grey tea. They'd make a cup of tea, they'd pull their tea bag out, they'd put it on the kitchen sink, maybe, let it dry. How long does that take? A day or two? Uh, and then they'd do that, and they'd wait until they had a packet. Let's say 25 packets of tea. They'd box it up, and they'd send it to their church's mission partners, perhaps with a letter saying, we pray that you may enjoy good health, and that all may go well with you. Enjoy the borrowed tea leaves. Vine Church, I cannot imagine. I know this is not how you support our mission partners. In fact, it's the opposite. They get tea too, or batch brew afterwards from Artificer down the road. In what manner do you support people who teach the gospel? Do you treat them as if they're going out on behalf of us, on behalf of God? I can actually think of many positive examples. Some friends of mine, they moved to the States to study the Bible, to learn how to pass the truth, the good news on to other people. And um, the church they were at not only gave them money for their daily needs, but they gave them a monthly allowance to go out and buy coffee and croissants. That's my kind of hospitality. They looked after them. I remember when, when I was sent out, um, when I became a pastor, this beautiful lady, this octogenarian at our church, uh, gave me $500 for my bookshelf to buy more books because she knew that in order to kind of share the gospel, I'd have to be up to date with what's going on in the world, I'd have to continue my studies. 
There's so many positive examples of this. But why do people do this? Why, why do people do this? Why do they support mission partners? Because they want the message to go out. They love the truth. And how is this um, a sign that your soul is well? It's for that reason. It's because it shows that you love the truth. If you partner with people, if you support people, if you put your money where your mouth is, it's a demonstration, a confirmation that you are aligned with the truth, that you love the truth, that you are a co-worker in the truth, which, which is exactly what John says. He says, we ought there, therefore to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. You know, you may not be able to go out, but where you can't go, your money can, your practical support, your prayers can. The church needs those who can go out. The church also needs those who can support those who go out. And as you support them, it's a demonstration that the truth about Jesus is the most important thing in your life. Um, but here's the thing. Why do we find that hard? You know, why do we find that hard? I don't know how you're feeling right now. I've just talked to you about giving money to missionaries. How are you feeling right now? You doing okay? How's your soul? Why do we find that so hard? Well, the answer to this question is actually given us... given to us in a person, in a a really personal way. Um, John writes this. He says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first, will not welcome us. And so when I come, I'll call attention to what he's doing. He's spreading malicious nonsense about about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. We don't know much about this guy Diotrephes, I can't even say his name. Uh, He's not written about anywhere else in the Bible. It's probably safe to assume he's a person of influence in a local church. But here's what we do know about him. Those five words there. He loves to be first. Can I have a slide that? He loves to be first. It was just one word in the original language. He loves to be first. And that single word sums up the heart of what we battle with when we support other people, what we battle with uh, when we try and love Jesus and his people, what we battle with for our spiritual health. Contrary to what anyone else will tell you, I think, what the media will tell you, the movies you watch, the books you read, contrary to what all they're saying, the greatest threat to your spiritual health is that you love to be first, that you love to be number one, that you're looking out for number one. That's the greatest threat to your spiritual health. Isn't that interesting? Uh, The desire to be first will rob you, will block you, will stop your soul from going well. That's the problem at the heart of us. What does it look like? It plays out in millions of little ways. Notice how it plays out for Gaius um, and how it plays out for us, Oh, sorry, Diotrephes, he gossips. He talks about other people behind their back. How often do we find ourselves protecting our own reputation, lifting ourselves up at the expense of others, by putting others down? Even the tiniest moments, they reflect back to us that we care more about ourselves than we care about others. It's obvious 
that Diotrephes had some kind of position of leadership. Um, but how does he use it? It says here he refuses to welcome other believers. He's standing at the front door of church, locking the door. You're not good enough. I don't like you. You're different. You're not up to our standard. You don't dress the same way. You don't think the same way. He's standing at the front door, locking the door. He's putting people out of the church. Don't come back, he's saying. Listen, there is no Christian idea, no Christian theology that does not express itself in love, in love for others. There is no Christian theology that does not express itself in love for others. And so this desire to put ourselves first puts us in opposition to the truth of God. This desire that we have that we love to be first, that we love to have control over others, that we love to think of ourselves more highly than others, puts ourselves in complete opposition to, to what Jesus taught, to who Jesus was, to what God is doing, to the truth about our world. And that's why it's so bad for your soul. It puts you out of alignment with God Himself. And this leads us to our final point. Well, if your soul is sick, if you do find it hard, if, if, if you want your soul to be better, how do you get there? How do you get your soul to be going along well? Well, the answer is you have to see God. You have to see who He is and what He's done. You have to understand the good news about Jesus. Notice in verse 11, he says to his, his friend, Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. Has not seen God. You've got to see God. That's how your soul changes. What do I mean by that? Well, the Bible is very clear. No one has actually ever seen God. It's okay. <laughs> No one's actually ever seen God. In fact, John writes in his letter, I wonder whether I have it here, I don't have it here. Uh, John writes in his gospel, he says, no one has ever seen God. He says this, but the one and only Son who, has, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. He's talking about Jesus. And Jesus himself said, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. You've got to see God. How do you see God? You see Jesus. You look at Jesus, who He is and what He's done. And how does it address our love to be first? How does it address our pride? How is it the antidote to that? Well, look at what Jesus has done. Look at this. This is the Apostle Paul writing. I did have it there. The Apostle Paul writing in Philippians chapter 2. He says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Look at Jesus here. Look at God. Look at what He's like. Maybe you've never heard this before. What did God do? The Apostle Paul writes, Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to His own advantage. Rather, He made Himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. God became one of us in Jesus. He took on flesh and blood. And being found in appearance as a man, what did he do? He, he humbled himself even further, becoming obedient to God, even to the point of death, even death on a Roman cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. See, when you perceive, when you understand that God came 
not to be served, but to serve. When you understand that our God didn't come to be first, but he put himself last. He didn't come to take from us, he came to give to us. To the, ex- to the extent that you see that God is not a, not a taker, but a giver. When you understand that God doesn't love to be first, but put himself last, that you and I might be first in his home, then your soul will be well. When you understand that he did not come to be received as a guest, but to give his life so that you and I could be received as guests into his home, the greatest act of hospitality, into his eternal home, safe forever with him then you can love to be last. You can put others first. You can support others who go out in His name because you know He will lift you up. He will lift up your soul. Your soul will get along well. How do you be soul well? You see God. See God and what He's done for you and His love for you in Jesus. Let me pray. Good God, loving God, thank you so much for your son Jesus, for the model of perfect love that we have in his life, a sacrificial life, a life of service, a life that, although deserving to be first, put himself last for our sake, a life that was rejected, that we might be welcomed. May we accept what he has done for us. May we be changed by it, even today we pray. Amen.